Well, good morning. Uh, like Nathaniel said, my name is Paul Ramsey. I'm one of the leaders here. If I haven't met you yet, it's so good to see you. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning to worship God, to sing, to pray, to hear his word preached, to take communion together. Um, just so glad, so honored uh, that you have chosen to spend this time with us this morning. Uh, and it's an honor for me to be here preaching God's word to you. I'm eager to see what God has for us uh, in his word. Um, today's sermon, we're in this passage, this amazing passage that is one of the most famous passages, one of the more famous passages in the Bible. Uh, God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. Um, and it really is a story like, like Beto was talking about. Thank you, Beto. Uh, thanks, brother, for sharing. Um, God is deeply concerned with each one of us in this room. Um, God loves his people. Uh, he loves all people and desires that all might come to him and hear his call to come to him and be saved. Um, and that's what we see very much in this passage. He is a loving covenant God who chases down his people, who draws near to us and invites us to draw near to him uh, by faith. So with that, um, let's jump in. Today is the second week, like Nathaniel said, um, of our sermon series through the book of Exodus, which will be in uh, for the duration of the summer and into the early fall. Um, the book of Exodus tells the story, of course, uh, uh, if you're not familiar with it, tells the story of Israel's divinely orchestrated deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Um, it's, they were delivered from slavery in Egypt uh, for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly people in the midst of the nations. And in the way that it's told, the story of Exodus reveals for all of God's people, both back then and now, what it means to be redeemed by God and what it means to, to worship and to serve him. The first half of the book of Exodus tells the story uh, of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, God's people, Israel. Uh, and the second half of the book uh, presents the law that God gives to Israel, which informs their identity as a kingdom of priests, like Drew said last week, that he is making them into. As a kingdom people, God teaches them how to live. And as a priestly people, God teaches them how to worship. And I want to remind you of two important things that Drew mentioned. If you were here last week, this will be a reminder. If you weren't, this will be important for us to just have in mind as we read this story from Exodus, the second book of the Bible. First, we have to remember that Exodus is our story. As Drew said, these opening books of the Bible, including Exodus, are in a real sense the ancestry.com of the Christian church. Right? It's far from being this irrelevant uh, foreign story about a foreign nation. This is the history of God's holy nation, the very nation that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection opened up for the Gentiles. Uh, and in other words, you and me, that we might be able to enter in. So we can't understand who Jesus was. Uh, excuse me, we can't understand who we are without understanding who Jesus was. We can't understand who Jesus was uh, if we don't understand the God who brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. As Jesus told his followers, Moses and the prophets wrote about me. And here we are in Exodus, the story of Moses, a book that was written by Moses. Um, and this is our story. The second thing to keep in mind is this, the Exodus, this particular story we are told by the apostle Paul happened for our instruction. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the apostle Paul explicitly invites us to read the story of the Exodus and apply this narrative directly to our lives as 21st, centuries, 21st century Christians. So this is both family history for us, but also uh, uh, richly informs our present reality of what it means to be God's people, even in today's world. 
And so as we look at this passage for this morning, I want to invite us to ask God together, um, what do you have for us in your word today from this story? It'll be more than simply information. What is it, Lord, that you have for us that you want to say to us through your word this morning? And here's what we're gonna do in our time together. Uh, we're gonna move through three points. Point one, a God who hears. Point two, a strange fire. And point three, an unlikely person. With that, uh, as we begin, I, I wanna tell you a little bit more about Exodus as a book, because uh, this is helpful for the first three, to help understand the first three verses of our passage today. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and it's written uh, in, 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 a, it's in a deliberately schematic, stylized way for a particular purpose. It's a history book. Exodus is telling history, real events in human history, and Moses, the human author of Exodus, documents these real events very purposefully. Uh, inspired by God in a way that ensures that we don't miss the themes that run through the story and the clear intentionality of God as he acted on behalf of his people in delivering them from slavery. We get our first glimpse of this intentionality with the way that the first two chapters are structured as they tell the story of the early life of Moses. For one, we see that Moses has throughout his life been molded and shaped by God into an Exodus-shaped person himself in preparation for becoming the deliverer sent to, to, to lead God's people in the great exodus from Egypt. So for one, his birth narrative that Drew mentioned last week uh, was itself a type of exodus. His mother and sister placed him in a basket of reeds in the river to save his life. And then when, G when Moses kills the Egyptian for abusing his fellow Hebrew, that leads to a second exodus as Moses flees for his life into the wilderness. And also we see that the story of Moses' early life is kind of sandwiched in between these two uh, pieces of bread, as it were, these short summary statements right at the beginning of chapter one, at the end of chapter two, that tell us this is uh, what you must know as you get ready to read the events of chapter three onward. Starting with chapter one, verses one through seven, where the stage is set for us in, Israel, uh, in Egypt, seeing that Israel is very prosperous. Beginning of chapter one, things look really good for Israel. They were fruitfully multiplying. They were uh, flourishing people who had come to fill the land. Uh, uh, they were experiencing God's blessing. But then things go rapidly downhill. And by the end of chapter two, we're given the opposite picture. After many long days, verse 23 says, the Hebrews find themselves not flourishing as they once were, but suffering greatly in slavery under the oppressive hand of the Egyptians. There's hope though, because in between these two slices of bread, as it were, there's this meaty story of Moses, this Hebrew turned Egyptian and then turned back to Hebrew, who we see here, uh, chapter two, verses 23 through 25, um, is the one being prepared to be the deliverer for his people. And so with that, let's begin with point one. Look with me, if you would, uh, at chapter two. This, we're gonna look at a God who hears. Verses 23 through 25. Um, I wanna point out a few impor important things for us. For the first thing, let me skip over verse 23 for right now and look at verses 24 through 25. It says, many days had passed, the people cried out to God for help, and then it says this in verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. If we've been paying attention up to this point in the story, we see a shift here. Up until this point, uh, the story has focused on the actions and lives of the Israelites while God has remained very much in the background. Here though, 
the perspective shifts. There are four verbs back to back, things that God does. It says this, says God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. So God has of course been present all along throughout the story up until this point, but here we see him step to the forefront. And in these words, we see something quite significant right up front. We're introduced to God for who he is. He's the God of his people who has lovingly bound himself to his people through covenant. Uh, God is a covenant God who will never leave or forsake his people. And when it says in verse 24 that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, that zooms us into a very specific promise from God. Covenant essentially means promise. And the promise in mind here is the promise that God had made to a man named Abraham, who you might have heard of. Back in Genesis chapter 12, it's a promise that God reiterates in, in kind of increasing intensity in Genesis 15 and Genesis 18. The promise is this, is that God would make Abraham's family into this great nation and that that nation would one day become a nation that would bless all of the other nations of the earth. It's a glorious promise. It's referred to time and time again in the Bible. But here, rather than looking like a nation with this rich promise of blessing in the face of all other nations, the Hebrews are in slavery. They're suffering under the hands of this powerful kingdom of Egypt. But we're told here that God remembers his promise. And he doesn't just remember his promise in an abstract theoretical sense. We're told that he heard their cries. He remembered his covenant and that verse 25, he saw his people and God knew. It's an intimate word in the Bible to to know someone and God knew their, their, their station. He knew their situation In the words we're given here, we see that far from being a removed kind of third-party observer kind of God, God is instead a God who sees his people, he knows them, he is with them in their suffering in a way that moves him. That's the first thing uh, that we see in this passage. God, who we see deeply loves his people, who's bound himself to them through covenant, is deeply moved by their affliction and moves here into the driver's seat. Which brings us to, I think, an important question which is the second thing that I wanna point out in this first point. The the question is this, what has God been doing this whole time? We're told when God heard his people groaning, he remembered his covenant. So here's the question, why did God need to remember the covenant? Why the delay? Those many days that we're told told about in verse 23, which could have been 40 years, could have been up to 400 years, depending uh, depending on a variety of factors. Why the need for God to remember? Did he forget about it? Whoops, been busy doing other things and I'm just now remembering that I've got this special people who I need to come help out. They're, in, they're having a hard time. And that's not what this means. The phrase, uh, here's, here's why. This phrase actually comes up repeatedly through the Bible. Right? God is constantly remembering his covenant, remembering his covenant. And the word remembering using in this sense is not the same uh, being used in this sense. It's not the same as when you and I remember someone's birthday or someone's wedding anniversary. In the Bible, whenever God's people are told to remember things, like throughout the Old Testament, when God's people are told time and again to remember the ways of your fathers or remember God's law, it's not that they had forgotten those things. It's that they were to call them to mind in such a way that active remembrance would inform and sometimes change the way that they were living. For us, when we uh, sojourn, take communion every week, we do so in remembrance of what Christ has done. We don't do this because we've forgotten what Christ did over the seven days prior. Right? No, we remember as a way of calling ourselves and each other to action. 
in a sense, in a way that reminds us to live all of our lives in accordance with the faith that we profess, following the example that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us, remembering that we can only do it by his sustaining power as he feeds us and nourishes us. See, there's this deeply experiential reality that's referred to when we're told about remembrance in the Bible. It's a powerful, active, life-changing, behavior-informing activity that by God's grace and through his power shapes a person's life in the direction of the thing that is remembered. And that reality is especially true when the word remembering is used with respect to God and his actions involving his covenant. God didn't forget his covenant, far from it. What becomes clear here and throughout the story of the Bible is that God's covenant is a story that unfolds gradually over time as God shapes and molds his people into the people he intends them to be. If you think about it for a moment, the God of the Bible who we're told created the universe by the word of his power, he could have simply spoken into existence this glorious nation that he told Abraham about, but that's not what God did. Instead, he spoke a word of promise said, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Abraham knew that promise would not be realized in his lifetime. His son, Isaac, knew that that promise wouldn't be realized in his lifetime. Isaac's son, Jacob, knew uh, that this promise would not be realized in his lifetime. Hebrews 11 says of these patriarchs and the many men and women who followed them, uh, it's, Hebrews 11 says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, having acknowledged that they were waiting for God to bring about the full fruition of his promises to them. Here and throughout the Bible, we are shown that God's plan for humanity And his plan for the world is a plan that unfolds over time, a story that God is writing using the fabric of the universe. It's this beautiful story of redemption and the love of a covenant God for his covenant people. And throughout the story of his people, he invites us into this greater story by faith and trust, even when we don't know how he's gonna work things out. As Jesus said to his followers, he didn't say to his initial disciples, he didn't say, follow me for I see that you are fishers of men. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When he speaks about his kingdom, which we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus gives all kinds of agricultural metaphors. He tells these parables of seeds in a way that often communicates the same thing. God's plan is a story, a relationship with his people that takes time. The seed must sprout and break through the soil and then bear leaf and eventually will bear fruit that is then eventually ready for the harvest. In other words, when we're told that God remembered his covenant, far from being a reference to an oops on God's part, it is instead a deeply significant phrase that God's people for thousands of years have known to point to the fact that through no good of their own, God nevertheless set his sights on them, binding himself to them astoundingly by these loving covenant promises. All along, God has been with his people and here this phrase tells us that God is getting ready to act on behalf of his people. Whenever this phrase appears in scripture, God remembers his covenant. It is usually a signpost for us that God is getting ready to do something. So here, as it is elsewhere, it's a signpost showing us. It's, it's It's a plot thickener, if you will. Where has God been? God has been ripening the situation, the circumstances for just the right moment. And here, that moment has arrived. And that brings us to, I think, another question. But this time, it's a question that I think that God is asking you and me through his word here. The question is this, what does your trust in him look like? If you're a Christian, you know that God has a plan 
and that his plan is always to work all things, even the bad things, together for good, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.28. So the question is, do you believe that? And do you trust him? God's people here are in slavery. God is about to perform what is perhaps the greatest act of deliverance until Jesus, but at this point, they have no idea what he's about to do. All they know to do is cry out to God. You and I, likewise, have no idea what God is getting ready to do. Some of you might be going, going through the ringer, so to speak. Some of you, your lives might even be falling apart right now. For others of you, things might be going well. For others of us, it might just be kind of going along, uh, waiting for, wait, you know, not neither, neither well nor poorly, just kind of waiting for the next thing to happen. Regardless of what's happening in your life, Whatever is going on right now, whatever's gonna happen tomorrow, do you trust God? That's what God is asking us. Do you trust me? Do you trust me beyond what your eyes can see? See, there's something fundamental, I think, to the human experience. We need our lives to make sense. We need our lives to be logical. When we don't see a purpose for our suffering, we tend to flip out, kind of. We question ourselves, we question God, we wonder what went wrong, but God is asking us here, And repeatedly through his word, will you trust me? You are not going to have all the answers, but will you trust me nonetheless? This shows us, I think, about the nature of the faith that God's people had in him. This is not a faith that understands everything. It's not a faith that is assured of everything with all questions answered and all of their doubts resolved. That's not what the demand, that's not what the expectation God has of us with respect to faith. Instead, we see a simple, patient, expectant faith that understands that despite appearances to the contrary, underneath everything in the world, the good and the bad, there is a providential good God who is working all things together for his intended ends. This kind of faith, this kind of confident, patient faith that hopes in things unseen based only on the word of God is a gift from God. It must come from God. You might remember a scene in the New Testament where Peter, where Jesus asks the apostle Peter, he says, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses. He says, you're the Christ. Jesus doesn't say, good for you, you figured it out. He says, my father revealed this to you. Jesus tells even the apostle Peter, this faith that you have in me, it's a gift. You didn't figure it out yourself. It must come from God. It's not something that you and I are able to drum up. It's something that God is pleased to give if only we ask So often we miss this. We try to take things into our own hands. Moses, if you remember from last week, he learned this lesson firsthand. He saw his Hebrew Hebrew brothers and sisters suffering. And when he saw one Hebrew in particular suffering at the hand of an Egyptian, he took matters into his own hands, killed the Egyptian. Botched it, in other words. Wound up fleeing for his life into the wilderness. And here we see in the story, kind of a turning point of sorts showing that this might just be what God was waiting for. Moses wandering, wandering in the wilderness. That's the third thing that I want to point out in this first first point before moving on. Third and last, what, what, what is the turning point in this story? Did you see it? What is it that caused God to hear, to remember, to see, to know? Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God. And then verse 24, God heard their groaning. Do you see it? 
what was the turning point here? As one commentator put it, when prayer was made, deliverance dawned. Right, so their groaning at some point turned from groaning into praying. They cried out for help and their cry of rescue from slavery came up to God who heard them. This is the first of many instances in the history of God's people that in their suffering, they cried out to God and as a result, God answered them with deliverance. The book of Judges, if you're familiar with that story, uh, uh, the seventh book of the Bible, it's a repeated cycle of this thing. God's people are oppressed by a foreign nation. They cry out to God, God raises up a deliverer and then they get delivered and they celebrate, then they get complacent they sin, they find themselves under oppression again, and then they cry out to God, and God again answers them, sends up a deliverer, they get delivered, they get complacent, and then they're fine. It's just this cycle of God answering the prayers of his people for deliverance. It's kind of a depressing book. It's also kind of encouraging that whenever they cried out to him, he answered. What we see here in the early chapters of Exodus is that God has been at work He's been bringing about his purposes and one of his purposes was to make his people a dependent people. In fact, as we read on in the Bible, we see repeatedly God teaching his people to call out to him. He says, come to me, return to me. I'm here, I am waiting for you. As Jeremiah, the prophet, to give one example, said, uh, God said through Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Through all of human history, God, is trying to be, try, God has been trying to get this message across to fallen humanity. Jesus picks up the same tune. Matthew 6, as one commentator put it, when Jesus taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer, giving them the very words that they were supposed to pray to God, he was teaching them that the one who knows all needs before they are ever prayed for, nevertheless expects them to be prayed for. And just a few verses later, Jesus says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open to you. In other words, God knows all of your needs before you even know them yourself, let alone ask him for them. And yet he still expects you to ask. To apply that briefly to us, that means that there are things that you and I don't have yet because we have not asked God for them yet. That's what that means. Notice here what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the Israelites brought themselves before God and said, God, we'll do anything, just give us deliverance. They didn't negotiate with him. They didn't barter with him. They just cried to him for help. Do you ask God for things like that? For one, think of it in the context of fighting sin. Have you just asked him for help and then listened for what he's trying to say to you? Are you still in a, in, a, in a process of bartering, negotiating, saying, God, if I do this, will you give me this? Do you just cry out to him and ask? What about injustice that you faced? What about joblessness? What about relational tension? What about your health, the health of a loved one? Have you cried out to God for help? Do you try to bargain with him or, or have you by his grace humbled yourself and come to him empty-handed, ready only to receive the grace that he is waiting to pour out. So that's the third thing we see in this first section presented loud and clear. It was the prayers of God's people, their pleas from a place of total dependence on and need of him that made all the difference. So that's point one. In this passage, we're given this picture of a covenant God who loves his people, who hears their cries. We have brothers, sisters, friends 
we have a God who hears. His ear is inclined to the voices of his people and in response to their cries for help, he remembers their covenant with him and he prepares to move on their behalf. And so let's look on to see how God responds. And from here, we'll start moving a bit quicker. Point two, let's look at a strange fire. Let me read chapter three, starting in verse one. It says this, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look. Let's stop there. So we we come out of chapter two, expecting God to do something. And here in a miraculous appearance, God appears to Moses in this burning bush. Imagine with me for just a moment what it would have been like to be Moses here. By this point, Moses has developed what is likely a a pretty solitary life in the wilderness. It's just him and his family. It's a life of exile uh, uh, on account of the crime that Moses had committed. Remember, he fled from Egypt after having killed an Egyptian. And so Moses is out in the wilderness walking his father-in-law's flock, but he hasn't come into any money, right? It's not even his own flock. He's away from people and he sees this burning bush. And initially, of course, he's curious. He has no idea though what he's getting himself into. And before we move on to what God tells Moses to do, let me point out a few things that I don't want us to miss here. Uh, First, notice how in verse one of chapter three that it says that Moses is at Horeb. You see that word, Horeb? It's a name that means parched mountain. So Moses is in the deep wilderness. It's translated here in the west side of the wilderness. Moses is out there. Uh, And he comes to this mountain uh, called parched mountain, Horeb. And this is significant because it links with a theme that we'll notice come up increasingly through the story of Exodus. Moses had fled Egypt, which was known as the land of water due to the presence of the Nile River. If you're familiar, the Nile cut straight through Egypt and it was a fruitful, abundant land, the land of water. And Moses had escaped from this land of water to the deep wilderness, which was a dry and desert land. And it's there in the desert that God meets him. If you're familiar with the story, we see here, of course, a foreshadowing of the event that is to come. God is going to deliver his people from the land of water, through the water, and into this dry and desert land where he's going to be with them, teaching them to depend on him as he miraculously provides for every one of their needs. Not only that, but we're introduced here to a theme that comes up time and again throughout the Bible, how God often meets his people, not in splendor, not in plenty, but in the wilderness, in poverty, in distress, in the valley. My mind goes to Psalm, 50, Psalm 63, excuse me, when David, King David, writes the Psalm, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And it's in this dry and weary land that David says, I find you. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, he continues, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. He goes on and on. 
Have you met God in this dry and weary land? You see, sometimes God allows us to wander, sometimes even draws us into the desert, into the valley, so that we see our need for him and our thirst for him in such a way that we cry out to him. So we come to Horeb, the parched mountain, which is this thematically significant, narratively significant location. And let's read on. When Moses sees the burning bush and turns aside to see this great sight, as he says in verse three, God calls to him by name. And then right when Moses responds, notice the first thing that God says to him. God warns him. He says, Moses, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It says Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Two things that God tells Moses here. One, do not come near. And two, take your sandals off. God's reasoning, this is holy ground. This is a holy space. So what does this mean? There's a couple things I wanna note here. Uh, For starters, we see that God himself in this passage has come down to appear to Moses and that even God's appearance to Moses in this angelic, mysterious form referred to as the angel of the Lord, we see that God's holiness is dangerous. Let me read the words of one commentator. Holiness endangers the sinner because the holiness of the Lord is not a passive attribute, but an active force embracing all that conforms to it and destroying all that offends. The trepidation humans feel before the Lord is not therefore the trembling of the lowly before the almighty or the created before the creator, but the fear of sinners endangered by holiness. The biblical symbol of this perilous force of holiness is fire and it pervades the book of Exodus, end quote. So you see, because of God's holiness, God is unapproachable. Moses knows this. As it says, he hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And Moses' fear of God has a variety of parallels throughout scripture. We see God's appearance to Jacob in Genesis 32, uh, to Manoah and his wife in Judges 13, to the prophet Isaiah in chapter six, uh, several others. And all of these humans have similar responses when they come into contact with the angel of the Lord, with God's presence. Jacob said, I saw God's face, yet I was spared. Manoah says, we are doomed to die for we have seen God. Isaiah says, woe is me for I am done for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's presence is dangerous, it's fearful. And that's why if you notice that even as he appears in real manifest form, like in those examples and here in our passage, it's always a veiled appearance. John tells us, the apostle John in the letters, no one has seen God. God always appears to his people in veiled appearance. He always guards his full presence from human beings because of his love for them. But here, the next thing I wanna point out in this is this. Astonishingly, right, even as Moses is afraid, he's averting his gaze from this holy, unapproachable fire that is the guarded yet very real presence of God with him. Even as Moses is afraid, you, know, you see what God does. God invites him to draw near and he gives him some simple instructions on how to properly approach him. Look at verse five, God warns Moses. He says, do not come near. In other words, God says, do not get too close. There's a line that no human being can cross. But notice that Moses doesn't need to flee either. He's not in peril right where he is. God says, all you must do is remove your sandals. The ground on which you're standing is holy ground. This is God's way of saying to Moses, even as I am unapproachable, you can yet remain close to me. There's no complex formula. Simply remove your sandals in reverence and you can stay close to me. 
in so many ways. In this, we see, and we're gonna continue to see throughout this series, the, the theme of the, really the whole book of Exodus. God, who is unapproachable, right? In his holiness, he is fearful and dangerous, is nevertheless pleased to extend the hand, extend the hand of fellowship to fallen humanity. That's the theme of this book. God has always desired to have a people to be in his presence and joining fellowship with him. We must take care, right? We cannot approach God in any way we please, but God nevertheless gives Moses this loving, remarkably simple instruction. I want you to remain close to me, so just take off your sandals and you can. This is perhaps one of the paradoxes that we're introduced to here in Exodus. Fire, of course, both here and elsewhere is terrifying and dangerous, but here and throughout the book of Exodus, this dangerous fire appears and reappears as the friend of God's people. There's this great pillar of fire, which is the guide companion to God's people in chapter 13, provides timely protection in chapter 14. Fire again is the sign of the unapproachable, dangerous God on Mount Sinai in chapter 19, when the entire mountain is lit up with thunder and fire at the giving of the law. And finally, the presence of God in the midst of his people uh, is, is, is given to us as the fire and smoke fills the tabernacle at the heart of Israel's camp in chapter 40. To, to, to close out the book of Exodus. So even though fire is this dangerous, powerful, and often terrible thing, it is yet how God chooses to draw near to his people time and again throughout this story. Here and for all time, we see that God desires to be with his people. He is present in all of his holiness, right in the middle, the heart of his people's life. And for Moses, it's strange It's an important detail for Moses. Remember verse two, Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. It was strange for Moses. Moses didn't look and say, oh, obviously this is God meeting with me, right? Moses had never seen anything like this. He had no idea what this fire was going to do. Even when God called to him through the bush, Moses had no idea what it was going to mean at this point in the story that the fire of God's presence had arrived to be with him. A few of us were talking about this the other day. I forget who it was who mentioned it. It might've been Austin or Nathaniel. Uh, But as we read on and get to Exodus 13, we see that God's presence by fire came to them in the wilderness, this pillar of, of smoke and fire, smoke by day, fire by night. This was with them nonstop for 40 years, nonstop. The entire time they were in the wilderness, there was either a pillar of fiery smoke by day or fire by night, right? Guiding them, enabling them to see, keeping them warm, protecting them. At this point, though, Moses had no idea what this uh, appearance would mean for his life. But we see here, God drawing near to Moses, appearing in fire, kicking off this great narrative of deliverance. And this is not, of course, the last time Uh, that God appears to his people in fire. And particularly noting the fact that this is at the beginning of a series of events culminating in a monumental movement of God in redemption, our memories might go forward to another moment in time at the beginning of a series series of events culminating in another monumental move of God in redemption. Right, think with me. Here at the beginning of Exodus, God had been preparing all things for this moment, working all of the events of Moses' life for the purpose of raising him up to lead his people in this extraordinary act of deliverance. And in this moment, when God is ready to send Moses and unleash the next chapter of his plan of redemption, God meets him in fire. 
in the form of a burning bush saying down in verse 12, I will be with you. If you fast forward to the New Testament, we see something quite similar. God had prepared all things for a particular moment, working all of the events of Jesus's life, death, resurrection and ascension together in preparation for the moment when Christ would be raised up to lead his people in the greater exodus, deliverance from death unto life and unto a ministry of deliverance. So these very people who are delivered would lead others on the path from death to life. And when God is ready to unleash this next chapter of his plan of redemption, do you remember what happens? At Pentecost, God meets his people with fire in the form of divided tongues as of fire, as we read in Acts 2, verse 3, at the event of Pentecost, as a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had made to his disciples, I will be with you. And just like with Moses, it is strange. It's a strange scene. When the day of Pentecost arrived, marking the arrival of the Holy Spirit, God himself, to dwell among and empower his people from that point on, the outsiders looked on and thought that God's people were drunk. Even in the years following that event, We see that the early church struggled to make sense with how to interact with the Holy Spirit, walking in his power, walking in his gifts in a way that was helpful and attractive to outsiders. Read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, as the apostle Paul helped lead the early church through this tension, this presence of this strange fire. The presence of his God with people, excuse me, the presence of God with his people by fire is a strange thing. It was strange for Moses. It was strange for those earliest Christians who received the Holy Spirit in Pentecost and it's strange for us today. But it is purposeful. And it's strange, I think, by God's design. This brings me to point three. Uh, The question we come to next is this, very briefly. For what purpose has God appeared to Moses like this? God's appearances are always purposeful. What is God doing here? Look at verse eight. What does God intend to do? Verse seven, when the Lord said, uh, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. He says this in verse eight, look at this. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and so forth. God has come down, he tells Moses. He has has come down from heaven to appear and he tells Moses why. He says, I've come to deliver my people out of the hands of the Egyptians, to lead them into this beautiful promised land. And God tells Moses, I'm gonna do this incredible work. At this point, Moses... It's probably thinking, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. I wonder how God's gonna do it. God had just said, I'm going to basically overthrow this powerful kingdom that has you in slavery. And I'm gonna lead you into a land where you're gonna have military victories over other powerful kingdoms. This is an incredibly big promise. And so how on earth is God gonna do this? Moses wonders. Well, verse 10, God says this. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Hang on. Moses probably thought to himself. In fact, no, he said it. Verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Like immediately Moses knows that he is unqualified for this task, right? This incredible task that God has told Moses that he is going to do, he's gonna do it through Moses. And then God the word of reassurance that God gives Moses is this. He says, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be with you. Verse 12, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. 
all you need to know for right now, Moses, is that I will be with you. So here we see, I think, the purpose for which God has come down to appear to Moses like this. The reason, the reason why God has drawn near to him, inviting him to remain close to him, is this. God had said he had come down to rescue and his plan was this. He was going to use humanity to save humanity. In other words, humanity, uh, uh, humanity is lost by themselves, but with God, all things are possible. Does that sound familiar? God is pleased to secure his redemption of his people through people by his power. Right? And Moses, at first glance, is about as unlikely as you can get for the candidate of the deliverer of Israel. Right? He is this former Egyptian on the run. He's weak with his speech, as we find out later in the story. He's probably weak in his faith at this point, but God chooses him, draws near to him to show him, Moses, of course you cannot do this in your own strength, but I will be with you. As we see time and again in the story of the Bible, God chooses what is foolish in the eyes of the world in order to bring about his purposes with power so that his power and glory might be made known. And of course, that brings to mind another unlikely man, the son of a peasant woman who had become pregnant out of wedlock, who raises this child in obscurity, this backwater town of Nazareth. The child would grow up to be a man claiming to be the son of God. He would be hated, mocked to the point of being put to death, this embarrassing, humiliating death on a cross. And it is by these humble circumstances that God secured the final and ultimate salvation of his people. He demonstrated that he did this by breaking open the grave, rising from death to life, ascending into heaven, receiving the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is by these humble means that God drew near to humanity with such tender love to demonstrate his love for us, to give us the invitation, you do not need to flee from me. All you need to do is believe in my son who I sent for your salvation and you can be in my presence. His words to you and to me, take off your sandals for this is holy ground, are not go away from my presence because you can't stand it. It's come and believe. That's all you need to do. And you can remain with me. In the story of the Exodus, God drew near to Moses with holy fire by which he calls and leads Moses along with all of God's people to and through their deliverance and redemption. At Pentecost, the church was filled with holy fire by which God calls and leads that church to, be the, to the rest of humanity for the purpose of leading them to and through their deliverance and redemption. Friends, we, you and I, are a collection of unlikely people who have no claim to God in all of his holiness whatsoever. Just like Moses who have yet been approached by God with the invitation to be sent to change the world for his glory. Who am I? Who are we that God would extend this offer? But he made it. Let us only receive this offer, hear his call. Incline our hearts to respond with faith, to live lives glorifying him today, tomorrow, and forevermore. There's, of course, more that could be said, uh, but I think I'm gonna leave it there for right now and close with just these couple of encouragements. First, 
I want us to, to, to not miss, not forget, remember, if you will, what occasioned this whole thing in the first place. Remember what occasioned this greatest event of salvation in the history of God's people before Jesus, the prayers of God's people. God desires that we be a people of total prayerful dependence on him. And for that, I have just one question for you. What is it? What is it in your life that God is inviting you right now to come to him for help that only he can give? What is that one thing? When is the last time that you prayed in earnest for that thing, bringing nothing but your humble need? And once you ask him for that, what's the next thing? And then the next thing after that, as Jesus said, ask and you will receive. God in this passage and throughout the scriptures and even through the ministry of Jesus makes this clear. God's people are an asking people. God's people are a needy people. If you wanna know what that looks like, Jesus said, look at children. We say that often here. Jesus pointed at children and said, this is what you must be like in order to inherit my kingdom. And what are children really good at? They're really good at asking for things. And then whether or not they get it, they're gonna ask for the next thing and the next thing. They ask all day long, even when they don't receive immediately. Have you noticed that? Kids don't ask and then get no, no, okay. I'll come back in two weeks. They keep asking. Jesus said, be like that. Finally, let us hear the encouragement from this passage, the invitation from this passage. I think at the heart of this passage, we see that God is always at work moving and acting on behalf of his people in his timing in keeping with his love for us. And what does that mean for us? What are we to take away from that? I once heard a pastor share a story where he had been asked on some, in some interview. He said, if you could summarize the Bible in one story was the question he was asked. Someone asked me, if I could summarize the Bible in one sentence, excuse me, what would I say? He said, I only need two words. Trust me. Trust me. The whole Bible, in a nutshell, is God saying to you and to me, trust me. Take me at my word. Here in this story, we see a covenant God remembering his covenant, acting on it, and inviting us, you and me, through this word. All you need to do is trust me. All you need to do is ask and watch as history unfolds and I welcome you into it. So let's ask him for that kind of trust, brothers and sisters, for his glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for each other. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, for leading us as your people into greater measures of faith and confidence and trust in you. I pray, Lord, that you would fix our eyes on this story um, and on the message that you are trying to speak to us through this story. I pray, Lord, that if I said anything unhelpful today, that you would graciously omit that from our memories, that only what is good and what is true from your word would be fixed in our minds. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would weave this into our hearts. Thank you for your presence with us in this place. I pray that you would minister to us, change us, cut us, and sew us back together that we might be more like you in eager anticipation of the, of, of, of the continued unfolding of your plan and your great promises that we eagerly anticipate. So Lord, we ask that you would give us faith that is unexplainable. Give us trust that we don't understand. Guard our hearts, Lord, we ask with peace that surpasses all understanding that we might cast 
the weight of our lives upon your shoulders, Lord Jesus, and watch as you lead us in triumphal procession towards that day of your return. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.